1859, uh, Charles Darwin wrote a book called the On the Origin of Species, and it had a much longer title than that. It's gone through many reprints. A very significant book, and I want to speak briefly about that this morning, and also about this book, which uh, was published in 1976. Richard Dawkins, prolific writer, um, called The Selfish Gene. Those two books, I believe, have been extremely um, important in Western Europe and the thinking of people. The effects in Western Europe over the last 150 years have been that the scientific model is the default answer to every life issue. By that I mean that everything that we face in our lives can somehow be explainable by something that can be measured, that can be tested. Interestingly, a quote from Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene, chance is just a word expressing ignorance. Interesting. And people say, well, just, just by chance something happened. And Richard Dawkins would say, you think it's chance now, but it's only because we don't know enough. The more we know, the more we can understand, the more the scientific model gets filled out, we shall be able to properly understand everything that happens to us. I'd like to suggest that in Western Europe, and I'm being careful with the words here because this isn't true in many parts of the world, but in Western Europe, this is the default way in which people think. It almost comes with our mother's milk as we live in this country today. That everything is explainable by science. That even the things that we don't yet understand will one day be understandable in that kind of way. And that all we're lacking at the moment is just a little bit more research, a little bit more scientific understanding. But for us today, here is the challenge. Because the beliefs and the practical behaviors of Christians have tended to adjust to suit the scientific model. So we take our Bibles and we are inclined to trust what seems reasonable rather than what is revealed. Because that's the way we think in our lives. Is this reasonable? Is it explainable? Does it meet the scientific test? We take the spiritual and we're inclined to trust what we can see and test and measure rather than what we can't. We take the supernatural and we're inclined to trust what is explainable by human experience 
rather than what is not. Results of this in the Christian world are quite striking. There has been diminished confidence in the Bible as a reliable source of information about God, but who is God, and about ourselves. So that it appears that Christians these days read their Bibles a great deal less than they would have done 150 years ago. Not by coincidence, at the same time as The Origin of the Species was published, theology in Western Europe began to take a liberal turn, especially in Germany. The result of which was that there was a complete reevaluation of the Bible and in particular of the nature of miracles. So that the theologians began to look at this book again and to say, well, if really we're living in a world that is only explainable on a scientific basis, how do we tackle the issue of miracles? What do we think about Jesus turning water into wine. Have you ever seen that? What do you think of him putting mud on someone's eyes and them seeing? Is that possible? Is that reasonable? Could he actually meet the funeral party outside the village of Nain and say to the young man, that dead young man, get up. Have you ever seen a dead man come to life? They must have got it wrong. Perhaps, perhaps there was just a bit of sight before and, and he got a little bit after that. Perhaps that dead man wasn't dead at all. Perhaps he was just in some sort of a coma. Perhaps it was wine all the time inside the bottles. And who is this Jesus? Can we really understand who this Jesus is from this record? Or do we have to sort of get behind the words again? to understand what uh, this real Jesus is about. And so they thought and so they taught, and so through the 1860s and the 1870s, a whole generation of future Bible teachers and Bible pastors and ministers were produced from these Western theological colleges, Bible colleges, and they went into the churches and they began to teach in that sort of a fashion so that their Bibles had to have scissors with them because there are certain parts of it you couldn't trust. There are certain parts you had to explain in a culturally relevant manner. And they would say, well, you can't trust the miracles. 
but you can understand the morality of Jesus Christ. You can understand how wonderful the Sermon on the Mount is. Now, these things are very reasonable. These are the things that we, we do need in our world. Never forget the miracles. Uh, and by the way, you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But we'll have the morality. So come to church, you'll be taught morality. And so it was that great swathes of previous evangelical Bible-believing churches actually went down a route which became very liberal and embracing of a concept of Christianity which became more and more and more adrift from the Bible. So if your minister doesn't believe the Bible, why would you do so? After all, he's been to college. He's read the books. He knows. A crisis of Bible reading. So should I be surprised to read in last month's Evangelicals now that a survey of Bible college students in the United States revealed that 80% of the Bible college students do not regularly read the Bible. 80%. No, I'm not talking about ordinary laymen. I'm talking about people who are studying to become Christian leaders. 80% of them don't have a regular time of reading the Bible. 80% of them are not opening the Bible every day in what we would call a quiet time. Don't you find that astonishing? Isn't that sobering? So I'm not going to embarrass this congregation by asking you to put up your hand whether you have a regular reading of the Bible time. But I let the, 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 that statistic ring home and say to each one of us here today, what is your Bible reading like? Are you so infected by the liberalism that came from the 19th century are you so infected by the pervasiveness, the media strong, the everyday background noise of the scientific model that you find it even difficult to read the Bible with confidence? Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I'm quite sure that there were plenty of people who at the beginning of the 19th century were absolutely confident in their, in their Bibles, who 30 or 40 years later turned to agnosticism or even atheism. Such was the power and the strength of the prevailing tide. Such was this... Uh, overwhelming tsunami 
of the idea that everything is explainable by the Lord of science. Reduced Bible reading. Selective Bible reading. We're all guilty of that, I'm sure. Especially when you're tired on a Monday morning. It's quite hard to even think about opening up in the book of Leviticus or even Nahum. I need some encouragement when I start my day. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to find that buried away in the book of Judges. But I'm pretty confident I can find it in Psalm 34 or Psalm 37 or Psalm 23 or probably somewhere inside an epistle. Selective Bible reading. Selective Bible reading because there are some passages which are very challenging and they do attack the idea of the scientific model. And then there is filtered Bible reading, which is something we all go through, where we read a passage and we just skip through certain things because they don't make sense or they don't feel naturally right for us. And I asked David to read the whole of Ephesians 6 this morning, not because we're going to speak about the whole of Ephesians 6, but simply because the very thing that I'm talking about is kind of present when we face a passage like Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 speaks firstly to children. Obey your parents in the Lord. That's right. Anybody got a problem with that? Anybody got a problem with that? No problem with that at all. Don't have a problem with that. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Extremely good psychology. No problem with that at all. Then we go on to employees and employers. Wouldn't the world be a great place if there was that sort of relationship in the workplace between masters and servants? Actually, masters and slaves in those days. But, yeah, if we had employers who actually recognize that they've got to give an account of themselves to God, that might change their behavior and attitude towards those who they employ. And uh, as a Christian person, I don't think we have a problem with saying, we're going to work to serve the Lord. And great it is at the end of this little letter here to hear about this dear brother Tychicus it's really down-to-earth stuff, isn't it? I'm sending him to you to, so that you can know how I'm doing. Really good stuff. What's what we like to do when we come on a Sunday morning here to church? We like to know how you're doing. How are you doing? How are you doing? Do you have a problem with that? You don't have any problem with that. It's all good stuff. It's all very comfortable and encouraging the ABC of living life got a problem at work Ephesians 6 probably helped me there verse 5 got a problem with children Ephesians 6 verses 1 to 4 that will probably help me so the Bible is a manual for us to live our lives by all that's quite true all that's quite helpful this is all Bible truth. This is all the word of God. 
But the passage we're going to look at today, and indeed the next two Sundays, is actually Ephesians 6 verses uh, 10 to 20. Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20. Now that is a lot more challenging. That flies in the face of all the very things that I've been talking about this morning. And it seems to me that even here with our very good tradition of Bible teaching, that we need the challenge of facing up to the passages in God's word that deal with the topics that are actually counter-cultural. Not to be mentioned in polite society. Not the sort of thing that can be easily said over the garden fence when you're trying to borrow the lawnmower off your neighbour. Let's have a chat about Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. And yet, if these are silent passages in our Bibles, we're doing no other than actually taking our scissors out and doing exactly what people used to do in the 19th century. And we may have Bibles which are complete in terms of their pages and their words, but in practice, we're filtering it. We're filtering it. Not a bad test of true Christianity to say, true Christianity consists in a fundamental belief in the truth of every word of the Bible as given in its original languages. Not a bad test of Christianity to say it is about the spiritual as well as about the earthly. Not a bad test of Christianity to say it's about things that are not explainable in natural terms. It's about the supernatural as well as the natural. And it's a challenge for all of us today. What is your attitude to this Bible? What is your attitude to the spiritual? What is your attitude to the supernatural? These are the very topics that uh, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 tackles. We've already had it read. But let me just read a selection or a section of it again so you might understand what I'm trying to come from. I want you to picture the situation. This is Ephesus. And Paul is remembering the congregation that he spent at least two years with. A congregation that has indeed wives and husbands, Ephesians chapter 5, children, Ephesians 6, masters and servants, Ephesians 6. They're sitting in the congregation. They're all there. So he tells them how they should behave. And he's remembering what it was like to stand at the front of that little group of people. And now he's writing a letter, but he's putting himself into that sort of preaching position. He's saying things as if he was a preacher, teaching this particular congregation. The children haven't gone out, they're still here. They're still here. So he gets to this point in 
the end of verse 9. He says, okay, let's just have a pause. I want most of you to leave the room now. I've just got a special message. A special message for a particular group of people. No. He doesn't say that. They're all still there. All of them are still there. The masters, the servants, the wives, the husbands, the children, the parents. They're all still there. And Paul is saying to them, finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Their children are three or four years old in this congregation. That's a bit frightening. It's frightening for them to hear that. It's good for them to hear that. Whatever your age, whatever your circumstance and situation, you need to hear the word of God in Ephesians 6. The whole of it. Because if we do not take on board the challenges of this passage, and many others like it, we will be extremely vulnerable in this world. We will be easy pickings. We will be the next candidate for unbelief, for loss of faith. We will be the people who used to sit here but don't sit here any longer. We will be people who started out well but eventually fall by the wayside. Firstly, we're in a battle. The Bible is full of the language of warfare. Think, if you will, of the whole of the Old Testament. How many battles were fought in the Old Testament times? I haven't done that study, but there's plenty, aren't there? How much blood was spilt? How many armies went to the field of battle? How often Israel was involved with conflict? Conflict, 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 conflict. They go to the promised land. What do they get? Conflict. War after war after war. It's wearying, isn't it? Why do you think it's all there? What's the point of it? Well, it really happened. But aside from that, the point of it is surely this, that it tells us a picture that the people of God are involved in a place of constant warfare. Constant battle. That what happened there with physical swords and spears and shields is happening to every person who is a child of God now, but in a spiritual realm. The Bible is full of the language of warfare. It affects every Christian in every age. This is not about how people thought in medieval times when they were a bit more open and up for the idea of battles. Don't be deceived just because the language here talks about a person who is 
definitely a Roman soldier 2,000 years ago. This is the language of today, and it affects every Christian in every age. We're in a battle, and whilst the battle may ebb and flow, if you're a Christian, you are definitely going to be in a battle. And I'll give you a very good reason why that is the case. It's because you've changed sides. You've changed sides. You were serving the devil once, and now you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been delivered from the kingdom, the dominion of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of light. That's exactly what the Bible tells about what your situation is. You are not a bystander. You are now in the army of the Lord. You are a paid-up follower of Jesus Christ. And you're in the front line. It's lifelong. So 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, Paul writes, looking back at the end of his life, maybe 60 years old, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. He's anticipating his deathbed. He's anticipating the very end, and he's saying, I know, as I look back on my life, I fought a good fight. It wasn't just when I was 20. It wasn't just the youthful lusts. No, every part of his life, there had been trouble and turmoil and difficulty and struggle. And so it is for us. And please, younger people, don't think that you come into a place of rest when you get to the age of 40 or 50 or 60, as if there are no battles to be fought. They're different battles. There are different challenges to be faced. But you've signed up for a lifetime of conflict. It affects every aspect of our lives. And how interesting that Paul puts this point at the very end of this letter when he's spoken about wives and husbands and their relationship with each other, when he's spoken about the children, their relationship to their parents, when he's spoken about masters and slaves and the workplace, well, it's covering a lot of life, isn't it? He's touching a lot of life here. And it's, he's looking back on all that and he's saying, finally, you be strong in the Lord in all those areas. You've got to be strong in the Lord in all those areas. And there'll be casualties. We will get hurt. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 11 is the passage uh, when Paul... Well, let's turn to it because it's good for us to turn to our Bibles. So page 1160, if you want to do that fast. Two Corinthians four verses eight to eleven. Well, what sort of a life is it for you, Paul? Tell me about what it's like to be an apostle. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed. I thought everything was plain. I thought he was so strong and clear. No, he knew what it was to be perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. 
The sentence of death, he says in another place, was upon us. He woke up every morning. What's it going to be like? It's going to be a death day. It's going to be a death day. It's going to be a struggle. I'm going to take up my cross. There's a battle to be fought. And we get hurt. We get hurt, and Paul himself refers to his thorn in the flesh. God was in that, but it was also a messenger of Satan. It was also a messenger of Satan. Came to him, troubled him, hurt him, caused him discomfort. We're in a battle. I think I made the point plain. The language of scripture is very plain. This is not an isolated uh, view of things. This is mainstream Christian experience. It's mainstream Christian experience, but it's not where the 21st century UK Brighton resident wants to be. Do I have a problem? I go and see a doctor. Do I have a problem in, in my mind? I need a psychiatrist. You know, everything can be solved. Somehow or other, everything can be solved. And Paul is saying to these people, you mustn't take that view. Life is much, much bigger than that. It's not to be boiled down to questions of tablets and courses and treatments. There's something far more profound and amazing going on in this world. And you are a part of it. So my second point is know your enemy. What is your enemy? Well, here are the possible enemies. There could be our circumstances. Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh. That's that reference there. You may be going through a particularly difficult circumstance and you might feel this is the key to my happiness and success in life. Change my circumstances. My circumstances are the enemy. I don't like my job. I don't like my boss. I've got problems with my children. I can't pay the mortgage. If only those things were sorted, I would be a much better person. Bible says that's wrong that's not the answer please don't buy that message please don't buy that message that's the world's message it's not the message of the Bible because the world is a dark and desperate place to live in Ephesians same book chapter 2 verse 2 You used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work. You used to live in a certain way, the ways of the world. The world has a way of doing things. You think, I'm not, I, I don't have to follow everybody else. I tell you, there's a lot of messages out there that cause you to follow everyone else. The world is a problem place to be. The Christian people in the past used to think, well, perhaps the best way of doing it is to get out of the world altogether. Go and sit on a very tall pole. Go and live in a monastery. Go to a desert island. They didn't escape problems, but they saw that the world was a des desperate place to be. Other people, they're a major problem in our lives. And Ephesians 5 and 6 has a lot to say about the problems of other people, doesn't it? How do wives get on with husbands? How do children get on with parents? How do I manage at work? 
And then there's ourselves. And if you know anything about yourself, there are times when you'll be despairing of yourself. Paul says, you know, when I want to do good, evil is there present with me. I know what it is to fall and fail. I'm so glad that my heart is not open so that you can see it. I'm so glad that you can't read the thoughts in my mind. Because I know what's in my heart. You know what's in yours. Even if I could sort all these other things out, I'd be left with myself. Hmm. Those are possible enemies. They're real enemies. But they're not the enemy of Ephesians 6.10. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me say straight away, I'm absolutely sure he's not talking about the earthly rulers, the earthly authorities, the Roman emperor. This is spiritual territory. And he's just saying, don't get this wrong. Don't fight the wrong enemy. Realize that the biggest enemy, the greatest danger, the most complex warfare is not against circumstances, other people, even ourselves, but it's against this, which is personified in the person of the devil or Satan, who is the adversary, the opponent, God's adversary and our adversary as well. Because we're on God's side. We're God's people. We're marked with his stamp. We belong to him. Therefore, we are the prime targets for the devil. And this is our real enemy. So, I take you through some quick examples of the way Paul thinks about his life. Well, we start with actually one from Peter. It's just on the screen. You can see it on the screen. So, Peter says, here's the context. There's suffering in the world. He writes to people who are suffering. Probably it was pretty acute suffering. They lost. Some people had even died. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Did they see the devil? They didn't see the devil. They saw the mocking people around them. They saw the lies and the innuendo and so forth. But... Peter says, actually, behind all that is the real enemy. Bible thinking too. The context is a pastoral problem. It's a church situation. Someone has behaved really outrageously badly. What do they do about that situation? How do they handle it? It's a pastoral problem. Put it over to the pastor. He'll handle it. He'll sort it. So Paul says in this situation, and he wrestled with it in 1 Corinthians. He's coming back to it in the second letter here. And he's saying, right, you've come to a point where you need to apply forgiveness. If you're forgiving him, I'm forgiving him. Really important you do this. Really important 
not just for his psychological well-being, but because if you don't, Satan may outwit us. Satan will have got a victory. Our front line we push back. And he goes on to say, we are not unaware of his schemes. You know the double negative? We are not unaware. In other words, we are totally aware of the way he behaves. We totally understand the way he works in churches. The way he upsets, the way he divides, the way he causes people to bicker and talk behind each other's backs and so forth. We're totally aware of that. And it's because we're aware of it, we're not going to be taken in by it. We're not going to fight with the weapons of this world. We're going to recognize fairly and squarely the devil's in this. Context, losing temper. Anybody here ever lost their temper? Thank you. <laughs> One hand went up. 35 other hands would have gone up. <laughs> In your anger, do not sin. Have you ever been angry? <laughs> do let, let the sun go down while you're still angry. And, oh, by the way, do not let give the devil a foothold. Everybody loses their temper. Common stuff. It happens. You hear people shouting off. And Paul says, do you realize if you go to bed at night and you haven't dealt with your anger, you've given the devil a foothold in your life and in your relationships. He's got a foothold. He's got a grip. Bible thinking for every day, as we've said, all that catalogue of relationships. And this is what Paul says to them. He says to them, be strong in the Lord because behind all these relationships, the devil's trying to get in. Now I want you to notice, and I'm not trying to be extreme here because I know that many people almost get paranoid in this area. But the way that Paul and Peter and the other apostles deals with it is they say, this has got to be dealt with. If you're angry, just get over it, say your sorries, go to bed, go to sleep. And P.S., remember, the devil's here at work, so you don't want to give him a chance. I'm not talking about exorcism. I'm not talking about sort of horror stuff and so forth. I'm just talking about the everyday, the mundane of life, because the devil is at work. We rejoice in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is with us this morning. But brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, the devil's here as well. He's whispering things in your ears. He's saying things to you. He doesn't stand and wait at the door. He's here as well. He'll be there at the church lunch. Do you need to know that? Not to be paranoid, but just to be straightforward, to be clear in your mind, and to recognize the reality of what's happening, what's going on. Tragedy, if we spend the whole of our lives fighting the wrong enemies. 
absolute tragedy because the word of God gives us a very, very clear statement of who we should be really fighting and what is at stake. So I end with this thought for this week. Because, you know, you, when, you, when you toss it up and you think, well, I could maybe deal with circumstances and I know how to get around my boss and, you know, I can do things for my children. But the devil, he's powerful. He's unseen. He's been around a long time. He's done amazing damage in this world. Who am I to fight against this enemy? When he has the audacity to come to Jesus Christ and tempt him in the way that he did, face to face, who am I to take a stand against this enemy? And Paul says, you're the person. You're the one to do it. That's what you're called to do. And do you know something else? Victory is sure. Victory is sure. Because of the armor God supplies, and we'll be thinking about that next week. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and I think that means when the day of a special temptation and difficulty comes your way, and it will, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. No? Not moving back, not retreating. Standing. Standing. That's victory. That's security. And secondly, because the battle is God's battle. The battle is God's battle. In the end, it's not down to you. God's honor is at stake. God's honor is at stake. And we'll be thinking about that in future days as well. You're in God's army. And God is never defeated. The whole of this Bible from beginning to end tells of this mighty titanic struggle. At the very beginning in the garden, there's the serpent whispering, doing exactly what he's done throughout all the ages since. At the very end, oh, there's still the serpent, the dragon. But he's defeated. He knows his time is short. We know the end result. We know what's going to happen. There's going to be a grand and glorious victory. And it's going to be manifest to all the world. Because Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every knee to him will bow. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're on his side. What a comfort and encouragement that is to know. You feel weak, you feel a failure, you feel you've done wrong in your life, you feel even this morning, I've sinned in so many ways. But you have the mark of Jesus Christ upon you. Jesus has died upon the cross for you. And he says, no one will snatch them from my hand. You won't be taken away. God will look after you. God will keep you. That's his promise and that's his intention. So there was another battle a long time ago and the king was frightened and the armies against him were vast. But this is what uh, was said to King Jehoshaphat. 
Listen, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. What an enormous encouragement. Brothers and sisters, as we go into our weeks, whatever they are, whatever the circumstances, whatever the difficulties that we face, the battle is not yours, but God's. Yes, there's fighting to be done. But God is the one who will get himself the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We close with uh, 